Story 7. Maymeys from Cuba, of Buttered Side Down. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Madeira. Buttered Side Down by Edna Ferber. Story 7. Maymeys from Cuba. There is nothing new in this. It has all been done before. But tell me, what is new? Does the inspiring and perspiring summer vaudeville artist flatter himself that his stuff is going big? Then does the stout man with the oyster-colored eyelids in the first row left turn his bullet head on his fat, creased neck to remark huskily to his companion, The hook for him! Rotten! The last one was an old Weber and Fields gag. They discarded it back in ninety-one. Say, the good ones is all dead anyhow. Take old Salvini now and Dan Rice. Them was actors. Come on out and have something. Does the short story writer felicitate himself upon having discovered a rare species in humanity's garden? The blasé reader flips the pages between his fingers, yawns, stretches, and remarks to his wife, That's a clean lift from Kipling. Or is it Conan Doyle? Anyway, I've read something just like it before. Say, kid, guess what these magazine guys get for a full-page ad? Nix! That's just like a woman. Three thousand straight. Fact. To anticipate the delver into the past, it may be stated that the plot of this one originally appeared in the eternal bestseller under the heading, He asked you for bread, and ye gave him a stone. There may be those who could not have traced my plagiarism to its source. Although the book has had an unprecedentedly long run, it is said to be less widely read than of yore. Even with this preparation, I hesitate to confess that this is the story of a hungry girl in a big city. Well, now, wait a minute. Conceding that it has been done by every scribbler from Tyro to best-seller expert, you will acknowledge that there is the possibility of a fresh viewpoint? Twist. What is it the sporting editors call it? Oh, yes, slant. There is the possibility of getting a new slant on an old idea. That may serve to deflect the line of the deadly parallel. Just off State Street, there is a fruiterer and importer who ought to be arrested for cruelty. His window is the most fascinating and the most heartless in Chicago. A line of open-mouthed, wide-eyed gazers is always to be found before it. Despair, wonder, envy, and rebellion smolder in the eyes of those gazers. No shop-window show should be so diabolically set forth as to arouse such sensations in the breast of the beholder. It is a work of art, that window, a breeder of anarchism, a destroyer of contentment, a second feast of Tantalus. It boasts peaches, dewy and golden, when peaches have no right to be. Plethoric purple bunches of English hothouse grapes are there to taunt the ten-dollar-a-week clerk whose sick wife should be in the hospital. Strawberries glow therein when shortcake is a last summer's memory, and forced cucumbers remind us that we are taking ours in the form of dill pickles. 
There is, perhaps, a choice head of cauliflower so exquisite in its ivory and green perfection as to be fit for a bride's bouquet. There are apples so flawless that if the Garden of Eden grew any as perfect, it is small wonder that Eve fell for them. There are fresh mushrooms and jumbo coconuts and green almonds, costly things in beds of cotton nestle next to strange and marvelous things in tissue wrappings. Oh, that window is no place for the hungry, the dissatisfied, or the man out of a job. When the air is filled with snow, there is that in the sight of musk melons which incites crime. Queerly enough, the gazers before that window foot up the same, year in and year out, something after this fashion. Item. One anemic little milliner's apprentice in coat and shoes that even her hat can't redeem. Item. One sandy-haired, gritty-complexioned man with a drooping, ragged mustache, a tin dinner bucket, and lime on his boots. Item. One thin mail carrier with an empty mail sack, gaunt cheeks, and a habitual droop to his left shoulder. Item. One errand boy, troubled with a chronic sniffle, a shrill and piping whistle, and a great deal of shuffling footwork. Item. One negro wearing a spotted tan topcoat, frayed trousers, and no collar. His eyes seem all whites as he gazes. Enough of the window. But bear it in mind while we turn to Jenny. Jenny's real name was Janet, and she was Scotch. Canny? Not necessarily, or why should she have been hungry and out of a job in January? Jenny stood in the row before the window and stared. The longer she stared, the sharper grew the lines that fright and underfeeding had chiseled about her nose and mouth and eyes. When your last meal is an eighteen-hour-old memory, and when that memory has only near coffee and a roll to dwell on, there is something in the sight of January peaches and great strawberries carelessly spilling out of a tipped box, just like they do in the fruit picture on the dining-room wall, that is apt to carve sharp lines in the corners of the face. The tragic line dwindled, going about its business. The man with the dinner pail and the lime on his boots spat, drew the back of his hand across his mouth, and turned away with an ugly look. Pork was up to $14.25, dressed. The errand boy's blithe whistle died down to a mournful dirge. He was window-wishing. His choice wavered between the juicy pears and the foreign-looking red things that looked like oranges and weren't. One hand went into his coat pocket, extracting an apple that was to have formed the piece de resistance of his noonday lunch. Now he regarded it with a sort of pitying disgust, and bit into it with the middle-of-the-morning contempt that it deserved. The mail-carrier pushed back his cap and reflectively scratched his head. How much over his month's wage would that green basket piled high with exotic fruit come to? Jenny stood and stared after they had left, and another line had formed. If you could have followed her gaze with dotted lines as they do in the cartoons, you would have seen that it was not the peaches, or the prickly pears, or the strawberries, or the muskmelon, or even the grapes that held her eye. In the center of that wonderful window was an oddly woven basket. 
In the basket were brown things that looked like sweet potatoes. One knew that they were not. A sign over the basket informed the puzzled gazer that these were maymeys from Cuba. Maymeys from Cuba. The humor of it might have struck Jenny if she had not been so scotch and so hungry. As it was, a slow, sullen, heavy scotch wrath rose in her breast. Maymeys from Cuba. The wantonness of it. Peaches, yes. Grapes, even. And pears and cherries and snow time. But maymeys from Cuba? Why, one did not even know if they were to be eaten with butter or with vinegar or in the hand like an apple. Who wanted maymeys from Cuba? They had gone all those hundreds of miles to get a fruit or vegetable thing, a thing so luxurious, so out of all reason, that one did not know whether it was to be baked or eaten raw. There they lay, in their foreign-looking basket, taunting Jenny, who needed a quarter. Have I told you how Jenny happened to be hungry and jobless? Well, then I shan't. It doesn't really matter, anyway. The fact is enough. If you really demand to know, you might inquire of Mr. Felix Klein. You will find him in a mahogany office on the sixth floor. The door is marked manager. It was his idea to import Scotch lassies from Dunfermline for his Scotch linen department. The idea was more fetching than feasible. There are people who will tell you that no girl possessing a grain of common sense and a little nerve need go hungry, no matter how great the city. Don't you believe them? The city has heard the cry of wolf so often that it refuses to listen when he is snarling at the door, particularly when the door is next door. Where did we leave Jenny? Still standing on the sidewalk before the fruit and fancy goods shop, gazing at the maymeys from Cuba. Finally her scotch bump of curiosity could stand it no longer. She dug her elbow into the arm of the person standing next in line. "'What are those?' she asked. The next in line happened to be a man. He was a man without an overcoat, and with his chin sunk deep into his collar and his hands thrust deep into his pockets, it looked as though he were trying to crawl inside himself for warmth. "'Those? The sign says the maymeys from Cuba.' "'I know,' persisted Jenny. "'But what are they?' "'Search me.' Say, I ain't bothering about mamies from Cuba. A couple of hot Murphys from Ireland served with a lump of butter would look good enough to me. Do you suppose anyone buys them? marveled Jenny. Sure, thing you know. Some rich dame coming by here, wondering what she can have for dinner to tempt the jaded palates of her dear ones, see? She sees them Cuban mamies. The very thing, she says. I'll have them served just before the salad. And she sails in and buys a pound or two. I wonder now, do you eat em with a fruit knife or with a spoon? Jenny took one last look at the woven basket with its foreign contents. Then she moved on slowly. She had been moving on for hours, weeks. Most people have acquired the habit of eating three meals a day. In a city of some few millions, the habit has made necessary the establishing of many thousands of eating places. Jenny would have told you that there were billions of these. 
To her the world seemed composed of one huge glittering restaurant, with myriads of windows through which one caught maddening glimpses of ketchup bottles, and nickel coffee heaters, and piles of doughnuts and scurrying waiters in white, and people critically studying menu cards. She walked in a maze of restaurants, cafes, eating houses. Tables and diners loomed up at every turn, on every street, from Michigan Avenue's rose-shaded Louis the Somethink palaces, where every waiter owns his man, to the white-tile mausoleums where every man is his own waiter. Everywhere there were windows full of lemon-cream pies and pans of baked apples swimming in lakes of golden syrup, and pots of baked beans with the pink and crispy slices of pork just breaking through the crust. Every dairy lunch mocked one with the sign of wheat cakes with maple syrup and country sausage twenty cents. There are those who will say that for cases like Jenny's there are soup kitchens, YWCA's, relief associations, policemen, and things like that. And so there are. Unfortunately, the people who need them aren't up on them. Try it. Plant yourself, penniless, in the middle of State Street, on a busy day. Dive into the howling, scrambling, pushing maelstrom that hurls itself against the mountainous and impregnable form of the crossing policeman, and see what you'll get out of it, provided you have the courage. Desperation gave Jenny a false courage. On the strength of it she made two false starts. The third time she reached the arm of the crossing policeman and clutched it. That imposing giant removed the whistle from his mouth and majestically inclined his head without turning his gaze upon Jenny, one eye being fixed on a red automobile that was showing signs of sulking at its enforced pause, the other being busy with a cursing drayman who was having an argument with his off-horse. Jenny mumbled her question. Said the crossing policeman, Get your car on Wabash, ride the umpty second, transfer, get off at Blank Street, and walk three blocks south. Then he put the whistle back in his mouth. Blew two shrill blasts, and the horde of men, women, motors, drays, trucks, cars, and horses swept over him, threw him past him, leaving him miraculously untouched. Jenny landed on the opposite curbing, breathing hard. What was that street? Umpty what? Well, it didn't matter anyway. She hadn't the nickel for car fare. What did you do next? You begged from people on the street? Jenny selected a middle-aged, prosperous, motherly-looking woman. She framed her plea with stiff lips. Before she had finished her sentence, she found herself addressing empty air. The middle-aged, prosperous, motherly-looking woman had hurried on. Well, then you tried a man. You had to be careful there. He mustn't be the wrong kind. There were so many wrong kinds. Just an ordinary-looking family man would be best. Ordinary-looking family men are strangely in the minority. There are so many more bull-necked, tan-shoed ones. Finally, Jenny's eye, grown sharp with want, saw one. Not too well-dressed, kind-faced, middle-aged. She fell in a step beside him. Please, can you help me out with a shilling? Jenny's nose was red and her eyes watery. Said the middle-aged family man with the kindly face. Beat it. You've had about enough, I guess. Jenny walked into a department store, picked out the oldest and most stationary-looking floor-walker, and put it to him. The floor-walker bent his head, caught the word food, swung about, and pointed over Jenny's head. "'Grocery department on the seventh floor. Take one of those elevators up.' Anyone but a floor-walker could have seen the misery in Jenny's face. 
but to floor-walkers all women's faces are horrible. Jenny turned and walked blindly toward the elevators. There was no fight left in her. If the floor-walker had said, Silk negligees on the fourth floor take one of those elevators up, Jenny would have ridden up to the fourth floor and stupidly gazed at pink silk and val-lace negligees in glass cases. Tell me, have you ever visited the grocery department of a great store on the wrong side of State Street? It's a mouth-watering experience. A department store grocery is a glorified mixture of delicatessen shop, meat market, and vaudeville. Starting with the live lobsters and crabs, you work your hungry way right around past the cheeses and the sausages and the hams and tongues and head cheese, past the blonde person in white who makes marvelous and uneatable things out of gelatin, through a thousand smells and scents, smells of things smoked and pickled and spiced and baked and preserved and roasted. Jenny stepped out of the elevator, licking her lips. She sniffed the air eagerly as a hound sniffs the scent. She shut her eyes when she passed the sugar-cured hams. A woman was buying a slice from one, and the butcher was extolling its merits. Jenny caught the words juicy and corn-fed. That particular store prides itself on its cheese department. It boasts that there one can get anything in cheese from the simple cottage variety to imposing mottled Stilton. There are cheeses from France, cheeses from Switzerland, cheeses from Holland. Brick and Parmesan, Edom and Limburger perfumed the atmosphere. Behind the counters were big, full-fed men in white aprons and coats. They flourished keen, bright knives. As Jenny gazed, one of them, in a moment of idleness, cut a tiny wedge from a rich yellow Swiss cheese and stood nibbling it absently, his eyes wandering toward the blonde gelatin demonstrator. Jenny swayed and caught the counter. She felt horribly faint and queer. She shut her eyes for a moment. When she opened them, a woman, a fat, housewifely, comfortable-looking woman, was standing before the cheese counter. She spoke to the cheeseman. Once more his sharp knife descended, and he was offering the possible customer a sample. She picked it off the knife sharp, tipped, nibbled thoughtfully, shook her head, and passed on. A great, glorious world of hope opened out before Jenny. Her cheeks grew hot, and her eyes felt dry and bright as she approached the cheese counter. A bit of that, she said, pointing. It doesn't look just as I like it. "'Very fine, madam,' the man assured her, and turned the knife-point toward her, with the infinitesimal wedge of cheese reposing on its blade. Jenny tried to keep her hand steady as she delicately picked it off, nibbled as she had seen that other woman do it, her head on one side, before it shook a slow negative. The effort necessary to keep from cramming the entire piece into her mouth at once left her weak and trembling. She passed on, as the other woman had done, around the corner and into a world of sausages. Great rosy mounds of them filled counters and cases. Sausage! Sneer, you pâté de foie gras, but may you know the day when hunger will have you. And on that day may you run into linked temptation in the form of Braunschweiger Metaverse. May you know the longing that causes the eyes to glaze at the sight of Thuringer sausage, and the mouth to water at the scent of Carvalot Wurst, 
and the fingers to tremble at the nearness of smoked liver. Jenny stumbled on through the smells and the sights. That nibble of cheese had been like a drop of human blood to a man-eating tiger. It made her bold, cunning, even while it maddened. She stopped at this counter and demanded a slice of summer sausage. It was paper-thin, but delicious beyond belief. At the next counter there was corned beef, streaked fat and lean. Jenny longed to bury her teeth in the succulent meat and get one great, soul-satisfying mouthful. She had to be content with her judicious nibbling. To pass the golden-brown breaded pig's feet was torture. To look at the codfish balls was agony. And so Jenny went on, sampling, tasting the scraps of food, acting only as an aggravation. Up one aisle and down the next she went, and then just around the corner she brought up before the grocery department's pride and boast, the Scotch Bakery. It is the store's star vaudeville feature. All day long the gaping crowd stand before it, watching David the Scone Man, as with sleeves rolled high above his big arms, he kneads and slaps and molds and thumps and shapes the dough into toothsome Scotch confection. There was a crowd around the white counters now, and the flat baking surface of the gas stove was just hot enough, and David the scone man—he called them scones—was whipping about here and there, turning the baking oat cakes, filling the shelf above the stove when they were done to a turn, rolling out fresh ones, waiting on customers. His nutcracker face almost allowed itself a pleased expression, but not quite. David the scone man was Scotch. I was going to add, do ye ken, but I will not. Jenny wondered if she really saw those things. Mutton pies, scones, scotch shortbread, oat cakes. She edged closer, wriggling her way through the little crowd until she stood at the counter's edge. David the scone man, his back to the crowd, was turning the last batch of oat cakes. Jenny felt strangely light-headed and unsteady and airy. She stared straight ahead, a half-smile on her lips, while a hand that she knew was her own, and that yet seemed no part of her, stole out very, very slowly and cunningly, and extracted a hot scone from the pile that lay in the tray on the counter. That hand began to steal back more quickly now, but not quickly enough. Another hand grasped her wrist. A woman's high, shrill voice, Why will women do these things to each other? said excitedly, Say, scone man, scone man, this girl is stealing something. A buzz of exclamations from the crowd, a closing in upon her, a whirl of faces, and counter, and trays, and gas stove. Jenny dropped with a crash, the warm scone still grasped in her fingers. Just before the ambulance came, it was the blonde lady of the impossible gelatins who caught the murmur that came from Jenny's white lips. The blonde lady bent her head closer, closer still. When she raised her face to those other faces crowded near, her eyes were round with surprise. So far as I can make out, she says her name's Mamie, and she's from Cuba. Well, wouldn't that eat you? I always thought they were dark-complected. End of Story 7 Maymays from Cuba Recording by Madeira